You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. All right, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And we're here to have another hopefully fascinating discussion about uh, creation and uh, creation research and creation scholarship. And I do want to pause here uh, to remind you, uh, if you would be so kind as to click the like button and uh, leave us a nice review and subscribe and click the notification bell, all those really great things that you can do to help us beat that social media algorithm that wants to keep us down. Uh, those things may seem like trivial and unimportant things, uh, but they really are kind of important for uh, getting the word out about uh, what we're doing here. And so if you've enjoyed this work, we do really appreciate you playing along with the social media conventions and helping us to um, helping us to reach a, a bigger audience. So thank you for that. We also want to thank, uh, we have a sponsor for this episode. That is the Cascadia creation conference cascadia creation conference we will be uh giving a little bit more information about that in the middle of our episode here um but we do want to thank them for their sponsorship and you can learn more about that at creationconf.com that's creationconf.com so thank you very much for your sponsorship so paul happy easter this is easter week Happy Easter to you as well, Todd. Yeah, he is risen indeed. Um, and we are very grateful for our Lord, uh, for his sacrifice, and for this season of the year where we can um, ponder the importance of the gospel, the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's the reason we're here. He's the reason that I'm here. So we are very grateful to our Lord for the sacrifice that he has made. Yeah. I think um, Easter is perhaps my favorite time in the church calendar. You know, I enjoy Christmas, but it's that note of hope uh, that we have yeah. at Easter with the resurrection of our savior. That's the highlight of the church calendar for me. Indeed. Yeah. And it's, it's spring of course. So, you know, there's greenery around on all of our trees here. And so, uh, it also reminds us of new life as we think about think about just the change of the seasons and uh, the the savior. So it's a great time of year. Yeah. All right. Well, today, Paul, I wanted to you know we just had our one year anniversary of the podcast, and we've been <laughs> bogged down talking about William Lane Craig and his evolution book a couple of weeks. Um, so uh, yeah, we wanted to sort of have a little episode of reflection talking about how we've been doing and sort of assess uh, a little bit of how the, the, the podcast has been going and what we think uh, we're doing well and maybe what we think we need to do a little bit better. And, and so one thing I think that most of our, maybe, maybe our listeners don't really know we are, constantly behind the scenes tinkering and um working to improve everything <laughs> um and i i 
think our listeners may those of the those of our listeners who have sort of a technical background in in media production and so forth have been noticing as we go improvements in audio quality, for example. <laughs> and Paul, we've had such time with your microphone situation, which is really weird. Yes. <laughs> um, so our yeah, listeners- we had all kinds of tech. All kinds of technical problems, didn't we, getting my microphone to work? And it actually turned out to be something really, really simple that yeah. my wife noticed yes. and fixed. <laughs> and it's and it's not even, it's just sort of a bug that happens yeah. when you plug in the stupid thing. And otherwise, yeah. it works fine. <laughs> yeah. So so those of you who have been emailing us, we, we got regular emails almost every time we released an episode when we launched um, begging us to improve the quality of the audio we hear you and we have so hopefully you've noticed that 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 has been kind of an ongoing um adventure uh, as we have been trying to improve the production the production quality of each episode so and paul so I, I was looking on YouTube yesterday, get ready for this episode. Do you have any idea the the total number of views of our episodes on YouTube for the first year? Any guesses you want oh, to put forward? Wow. Uh, no, I've got absolutely no idea at all. The, the um, official number that I counted, and of course, it's going to be different today because it's, it's, it's a day later. But the official number that I counted yesterday uh, was 20,142 views. Wow. For all of our episodes, the average episode then comes out to be about 775 views so far, um, which that's great. That's really great. Pretty yeah. terrific. I mean, we're no, you know, we're no superstar celebrity person who puts out all these fancy videos yeah. all the time and gets millions of likes. But I think we're doing pretty well, given we're a very specific kind of a podcast. So, yeah, I think. It's yeah, that's that's good. tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're very grateful to everybody who's who's joined the audience and I and was just going to say a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for for yeah. all of you who've come along for this adventure. And and thank you for those of you who have uh, who have made contributions to see this continue. We really appreciate that. And those of you who've sent in comments, some of which we've replied to, some of which we might not have. Uh, but we really do appreciate all of your feedback and your encouragement for um, the work that we're doing. And I'm sure anybody who's got ideas for things that they'd like to see on the podcast in the future, all ideas are gratefully received. We we can't always guarantee that we're able to deliver everything that people want to see, but um, we've certainly had uh, emails come in in the past that have given us ideas for episodes. That, That's that we right. Would do. So, yeah, we are grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, you got any idea of what our our most popular episode was for the first year? Ah, oh, I don't know what the most popular episode is. Uh, there, there's a clip. Yes, there's a clip. Which, we know uh, the clip. We extracted <laughs> we extracted a clip from one episode, which was about where, where did Kane get his wife, and yeah. I think that's probably the most popular single item. But yes. In terms of a whole episode, I'm not sure what what's the most yes. popular one then. Tom? So you're you're definitely right about that clip. That one was wildly popular <laughs> for reasons I still don't quite understand. But okay, if you like it, we we'll keep doing stuff like that. But the most popular episode I found. Uh, with 1,689 views as of yesterday, mm. was Where's My Missing Link on the general concept of transitional ah. forms. So that's our most popular 
episode. Uh, and of course, if we're going to do the most popular, we have to do the poor guy at the end. What's the <laughs> least popular episode, do you think? I wonder if it's... Is it the one about creation model building? It's not. Is, is that the one? No. No? It's close. <laughs> okay. It's the one... Uh, Surprise me. It's our episode where we discussed uh, what we call ourselves, creationists or ah, interventionists. Okay. Um, now that's a real shame because actually that is. episode was a fascinating discussion. I totally um, agree. <laughs> and and I I you know we kind of got you know it's it's really insightful because it really makes you kind of think about you know who you are and what we're doing and what we should call ourselves. Yeah. And I I just thought that was a great discussion. What what a shame that that's had the least number of views. So well. You know, if you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you go back and check it out because it really is a cracking episode. Definitely. And we're gonna we're gonna put the, the, those two episodes are definitely going in the show notes and the comments or the the description yeah. of our our YouTube video here because, uh, yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you. I I was very disappointed. It's only gotten two hundred thirty few view two hundred thirty four views on um on YouTube, and I thought, man, that is that is a shame because, like you say, there's there's something just deeply existential about you know what is the really yeah. important thing that we as creationists believe that really ought to go in that term that we call ourselves yeah um and yeah. and it's it's and it's fascinating to me uh, and so well yeah. i guess somebody had to be the last episode but yeah. <laughs> the least popular one <laughs> Our top five videos have been viewed more than a thousand times each on youtube so that's very nice and very very cool um so to and that brings me uh, to today's subject so paul we're gonna at the very beginning of our series last year we decided we needed to have uh some kind of some kind of discussion of what we're talking about when we talk about this thing called the creation model. What in the world is that? And why does it exist? And so forth. And so we did that episode then. And then, generally speaking, when we chose our topics, sometimes we chose topics because, oh, I want to talk to that guy. I think he's going to be a really interesting guest. And sometimes we chose topics because... It was a current event, and we thought it would be relevant to what's going on in the world. And, and sometimes we just chose topics because we thought it would be interesting to talk about, like, what do we call ourselves? And so uh, I thought it would be good for us to sort of rewind a little bit here at our sort of one-year anniversary and think about how do the episodes that we produced, how do they fit together into that model? Can we help our listeners and our viewers sort of sort of sit back and step back and think about, okay, where does this thing fit in the big picture? Because the big mm. picture is really important. And the sort of crazy order that our episodes go in, it's not very systematic. We're not trying to make a we're not trying to make a no. course in creationism here. Um, so I think it's good for us to sort of sit back and think about how it all yeah. sort of fits together. So, Yeah, because we can be so focused on the little pieces of the jigsaw that we kind of fail sometimes to stand back and look at the big picture. And, you know, I agree. I think it'd be great to do that to help our listeners and viewers put some things into context 
you know, to kind of have that mile high overview of the, the, the whole creation model and see where everything fits together, um, you know, rather than just sort of fixating on individual bits of the puzzle, but to actually get that overview and see, you know, where, where, where the edges are and what the picture that, that's kind of emerging from all of this really looks like. And uh, yeah, and I think <laughs> scholars and scientists tend to get obsessed with really cool stories about really obscure details. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's really easy for us to get lost in the detail and forget about, you know, what does this all mean and why do I care? And, and that sort of questions. So. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, <clears throat> Uh, I think as we go through this, we're going to find that there is a part of the uh, creation model that we've been neglecting. I, I ah. didn't really realize it, but as I sort of looked at the <laughs> at the subjects of the episodes, I realized, oh my, there is a glaring um, uh, uh, opening that we haven't really addressed. So... Yeah. So thinking about the creation model, what is it and how does it work? That's sort of my first category. This is sort of the big picture stuff. So in that uh, category, I've put, oh goodness, six of our episodes. So we did 26 mm -hmm. episodes the first year. And we stayed on that every other week schedule, which is pretty relentless. And I can see mm -hmm. why people burn out <laughs> from doing these <laughs> kinds of things. Because every other week is, is a lot of work. Anyway, um, so 26 episodes, I'm going to talk about 22 of them. There are four of them that I have left out, and you'll see why uh, when we get, uh, as we get going here. But anyway, so six episodes that I put into this category of creation model, what is it, how does it work? Uh, they're episode three on model building. What is a model and how does it work? Episode four on creationist scholarship. I also put in episodes 16 and 17, which are our reflection on the Genesis flood for its 60th anniversary. Mm. I thought yeah. that really, we talked a lot about modeling and model building in those, mm. in those episodes and, and the importance of the Genesis flood to that process. So I thought that went there pretty well. I put episode 19, what do we call ourselves? Uh, because I thought that was very important for us to think through, you know, what is the most important essential ingredient to being a creationist and, and how does that, how is that reflected in, in our name? And then uh, episode 20, our sort of discussion of, is this really science and how does science work? And mm. is creationism, does creationism really fit in there? So Paul, could you just, mm. I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but can you reflect a little bit on the, the notion of, of a creation model? What is it, or a scientific model? What is it that we're trying hmm. to do when we build a model? And is that different from testing and experimenting? What's How does it all work together? Okay. Give me a brief yeah. rundown of that. Yeah, so the way I see a scientific model is it's a kind of conceptual framework that you can use to... Um, explain the patterns that we see in the natural world. Uh, it's, it, it's, if you like, a kind of story that tries to show how everything fits together into a kind of coherent narrative, a, a coherent whole. So we have lots of data, and we want to kind of make sense of that data. And the way we do that is we construct a model that 
tells us something about how the the world works um and you mentioned their experimentation and testing well one of the things that a good model allows us to do is to predict future observations that we might make or future experimental outcomes that we you know we we can predict and then we can test our model by going out and collecting more data or conducting more experiments and by doing that we can then see whether our model really works and we can if we find that there are aspects of the model that don't work we can adjust our model we can change our model in various ways to try to make it explain more and to make it more predictive uh, more explanatory and so our models are going to change over time you know as we collect more data as we make new observations as we do new experiments then our models are not going to stay static uh, they're going to develop over time. They're, they're going to hopefully expand to explain more. And um, that's basically how models work. Models yeah. are quite resilient things. Um, yep. you, you don't instantly throw out a model just because, you know, one piece of data doesn't fit the model because models are malleable. You can you can change them. You can adjust elements of the model and find that it actually explains more that way. Um models really only get rejected ultimately if you have an accumulation of data over a long period of time that um you know you have a kind of consistent um consistent accumulation of data that just doesn't fit this model and eventually you may decide that your model has to be replaced with something else yeah um but yeah and and models are important to us because as scientists they help to guide our research you know they help to they help us to formulate the kinds of questions that we're going to ask they help to guide the kinds of experiments we want to conduct the sorts of data that we want to collect um so they're frameworks that help us actually do the business of of science right so so that's a, that's what a model is yeah yeah and they're different from here in america <laughs> We still teach people the scientific method in in high school and in 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 grade school, where you have an idea and you think of an experiment and you test it, and then if it turns out to be supported or turns out to be true, then it can become a theory, and a theory eventually gets tested a lot and becomes a law, which is not really how any of it works. <laughs> Science really doesn't work anything like that. I've never done any of that kind of stuff. Um, but but models, yeah, like you say, they sort of coordinate a lot of messy data that that's sort of tried trying to put it together into a single coherent. I like the idea of story because that really does sort of tie back to the creation model. So as I see it, the creation model has a biblical component to it, right? That sort of sets out yeah. a very simple framework. And I want to emphasize simple here because... Genesis 1 through 11 does not give us a lot of detail, right? Mm. As a scientist, when I read Genesis 1 through 11, I keep wanting to say, yeah, but what does that mean? And how does that happen? Yeah. And what is this <laughs> word talking? What, what do you mean by that? And the Bible doesn't care anything about my science questions. <laughs> no. Because it's not a science book, right? Uh, but it does no. give us this, this basic this basic outline of earth history that I, you know, I think of in kind of 
four steps, right? So there's creation. Mm-hmm. There's the fall into sin. Uh, there's the flood. And then there's the period after the flood, which includes um, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Paul, mm. you, you, you like that basic framework, that basic storyline there? That sound good? Yeah, I, th- I think... I think that basically sums up the the key um, events in Genesis one to eleven, at least that are going to be relevant to to us as as scientists in particular. Right. And I think you've also kind of hit on something there, or a way that cr- the creation model is different from the conventional model is that we are explicitly seeking to incorporate scriptural data as well as scientific data. Right. Um, you know, in conventional science, they. They, they don't do that. They're, they're not interested in conforming their theories to, to scripture. But as creationists, that's what we want to do. Right. So we want to come up with models, with theories that not only explain the scientific data, but are also consistent with that historical framework given in the Bible of creation, fall, flood and uh, Babel. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. And, and, and I think also, you know, with this idea of conforming these models, I don't think that it's as easy as saying, here's what the Bible says. And so this science theory must be wrong or this science theory must, you know, fit into, you know, somehow. I, I, I find, as I've already said, sometimes the Bible is um, maddeningly uh, vague <laughs> about things. Yeah. And there's enough there that you can say, OK, well, I'm pretty sure this this scientific model over here is probably wrong. But I'm not quite sure, you know, there's 15 different alternative models that you could adopt for a particular thing. And it's not clear to me um, exactly which one is going to be right. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. The, the Bible gives us a framework, but it also gives us an immense degree of freedom as scientists to look at the scientific data and work out which model is actually the right one. Because you could conceive of a whole host of models that are consistent with scripture, but we're going to have to look at the scientific data perhaps to work out which of those theories is, is the correct one. That's right. And, you know, we, we may find that there are, there are models that we reject because of scriptural information. You know, that does happen where, you know, the scripture does give us some specific piece of information that, is, is in effect a you know a kind of showstopper for a particular model but often that's not the case uh the, the bible for example doesn't say anything about fossils so right. you could come up with hundreds of different yeah. ways of understanding when the fossils were formed and how they were formed within the broad sort of framework that the scripture gives us that's and right. actually the bible isn't going to help us to distinguish necessarily between which of those is correct yeah yeah, and I think the same, you know, the same is true for something like Neanderthals. Um, mm. I've heard people talk about Neanderthals. Neanderthals are the Nephilim from Genesis six. Mm. I, I don't think that's true. Uh, some other people say that Neanderthals are just really old people from Genesis five and Genesis eleven. You know, people living hundreds of years. I don't think that's right either. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, so there's different ways of imagining how particular things fit in the Bible because the Bible just, you know, it doesn't doesn't use the word Neanderthal. It doesn't know that word. That word didn't come around until 
you know, the 19th yeah. century. And so, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of yeah. freedom to what we're doing here. And there's a lot of creativity yeah. uh, that I pe- think yeah. people just don't really fully appreciate sometimes. Yeah. And so it always bemuses me when I, when I hear um, sort of skeptics who say, you know, you creationists, you can't do any real science because you know, all the answers already in advance. No, <laughs> I don't know no. much of anything in advance. I know a vague outline of history. I know vaguely yeah. how long it probably took. Um, and that's yeah. about it. <laughs> that's yeah. as far as it goes. Yeah. Yeah. The skeptics. Yeah. Sometimes the skeptics uh, strike me as people who haven't really stopped to think very carefully about their skepticism. <laughs> all right well under the creation so when we think about creation there's a lot of things that we can think about that are relevant to the actual events of creation week one thing that we can put into that into that category i think is astronomy and the universe the origin of the universe itself um it is uh danny faulkner who is an astronomer works at uh answers in genesis he he likes to remind uh, us geologists and biologists that uh, whereas we've got all this data in the scripture describing the flood and describing living things being created uh, for him and he made the stars also that's basically all he's got to go uh, so talk about a maddening lack of detail there you go right there you know how do you fit the universe yeah. in there we haven't really talked too much about the stars here we probably need to rectify yeah. that in in the future, um, yeah. Because that's kind of a literally a big issue, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we really do need to have some guests on who can help us think through some of the issues around astronomy and cosmology because yeah. we we have no expertise in these disciplines at all. You're, you're a biologist, and I'm essentially an earth scientist. Yep, and um. Yeah, so we've we've sort of studiously um, kept clear of, Avoided of it. <laughs> talk, talking about stars and galaxies and planets. Planets, and such, um, but yeah. it's kind of they say, don't they, that astronomy is everybody's favourite second science? I'm I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, I I do love learning about astronomy, but yeah. I have no expertise in this area. Um, but it is a big aspect of. The creation model and you know literally and literally uh and a a lot of work is being done uh in in this area i think it's fair to say that um there is a lack of consensus among those who are working in this area it is very underdeveloped compared Mm -hmm. to some other parts of the creation model um there are a lot of unknowns and I think they're not only unknowns from a scriptural perspective. You know, you've mentioned the the lack of um, biblical data that kind of gives us constraints and anchor points. But also, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty in the field of cosmology itself. You know, what answers to those big questions? Um, you know, what is the cosmic microwave background radiation and how do we explain that? Yeah. And, you know, what? is dark energy and dark mm-hmm. matter mm-hmm. and uh you know what about redshifts of galaxies and what they're telling us about the expansion of the universe there, there are these really big scientific questions 
And I remember um, a few years ago going to a talk by a secular cosmologist. And he gave a kind of outline of what the secular cosmo cosmological model was. And then at the end of the talk, he said something very interesting. He said, look, if you invite me back in 10 years time to give this lecture again, I'm probably going to give you a completely different kind of lecture because all of the topics that I've touched on, all of these big questions are, um, you know, they're, 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 they're really things that we still don't know very much about. And, yeah. you know, inevitably things are going to look very different in the, in the future. So I think it's not a surprise that this is also the most sort of underdeveloped uh, part of the, the creation model, I think, the cosmological right. model. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah. Another thing that we think about when we think about creation is just what, what was the world like sort of at mm. the end of creation week, right? So thinking about geologically or geographically, um, that's a subject that we haven't really gotten into much. Um, we, we've talked to some geologists about some of their research, but we haven't really talked too much about what the physical world might have looked like if you were able to see it. Now, that's something Yeah, I'm pretty sure we can rectify that rather easily because there's lots of ideas yes. that have been proposed. So we could talk about that. Um, yeah, and, uh, and the, the Bible does give us some some clues about mm -hmm. what that pre-flood world was like That's again right. you know they're they're sketchy in some ways but we know that there were continents and oceans because god yep. created the land and the sea that's right um and you know we know about the different um groups of animals and plants that god made that would have populated those areas we don't know mm -hmm. anything from scripture not much anyway about uh, exactly how they were distributed on the surface of the earth um, the bible doesn't tell us very much in terms of details of the topography of the pre-flood world apart from it gives us some details about eden eden yeah but it doesn't tell us anything much about the rest of the world so yeah uh, we have a few scriptural clues but we can also learn a lot from studying the fossil record and kind of obviously exactly. we're you know the the fossil record was formed during the flood, but we can perhaps sort of um, work backwards from that to sort of try to reconstruct right. what that pre-flood world must have been like. So that's why so, in in this in this category, I'm putting episodes eight and nine, which are on transitional fossils, mm -hmm. uh, transitional mm -hmm. forms uh, or intermediate forms, um, which uh, are yep. not actually transitional because there isn't a transition being made, but. <laughs> They're intermediate in the sense of here's a created yes. kind here and here's a created kind over there and here's some weird created kind in the middle that we don't have anymore because it's mm -hmm. gone extinct. Yeah, yeah. those that, that's the sort of thing that you think about in terms of well, why did God make that that way and what what's he trying to tell us about? Yeah, and that's going to give us some insights into the diversity of living things in the pre-flood world. That's right. And their order in the fossil record um, perhaps gives us some clues as to the ecological structure of the pre-flood world. So yeah, we can we can begin to do some work in that area, and some yes. work has been done, which we haven't, as you say, we haven't really talked about so much on the podcast right. so far. Right. 
but it but it's well worth talking about and yeah as i'm looking through this list i'm thinking we could do an episode on this we could do an episode so this is great i mean we're gonna have <laughs> the next year planned out probably the end of this episode it'll be good um so so let's uh before we go on with our uh list here let's pause and uh learn a little bit about the cascadia creation conference the sponsors of this episode Join us at the Cascadia Creation Conference in person or online and be amazed and encouraged by the glory of God's good design, even in our fallen creation, as we look forward to the promise of a new creation in which righteousness dwells. The Cascadia Creation Conference is coming April 22nd and 23rd to Bothell, Washington, north of Seattle, and streaming online. This conference will bring together leading creation scientists and thinkers to consider the themes of design and brokenness in creation and what the Bible has to say about the natural history of the world in which we live. The Bible records a pivotal event in Earth's history, the fall of man, the entrance of sin, and all its destructive effects into creation. Today, we see the initial perfection of God's creation through a glass darkly marred by the effects of sin. At the Cascadia Creation Conference, we will explore the implications of sin and the curse upon creation. We will examine the fields of biology, geology, and astronomy, and learn that even in their broken, fallen state, God's creative works continue to proclaim His glory and point us toward the hope of a better future. Speakers at the Cascadia Creation Conference will be Dr. Gordon Wilson from New St. Andrews College, host of the creation documentary The Riot and the Dance, paleontologist Dr. Matt McLean from the Masters University, aerospace engineer Spike Saris of creationastronomy.com, and Dr. Jeremy Lyon from Truett McConnell University, president of the Creation Theology Society. Admission to the in-person event is $20 and live stream access is $10. Buy your tickets or get more information at creationconf.com. That's creationconf.com. So that is the Cascadia Creation Conference. I hope those of you in the Pacific Northwest who have an interest in this kind of work will check that out. That sounds like a definitely great conference uh, to uh, learn from. So if you're able to attend that, I hope and, you are able to go. And it's being live streamed as well. So those who are outside of the Northwest right. can, can tune in. So yeah. that's great theoretically you could tune in from anywhere in the world if you could actually absolutely get a good connection all right so the next category here in our creation model this one's the one where i couldn't think of anything to specifically put in here except for maybe a few bits and pieces from different episodes but this that's the fall mm. um the the origin of death the the onset of death now it plays an important role in sort of constructing the way we approach, say, the fossil record, right? So one thing that we think as creationists is that death as we know it, including some forms of animal death, and this is something where different creationists kind of disagree on exactly how this works out, but definitely certain animal death and certainly suffering uh, is something that comes into the world as a result of Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin. Mm. And so this was not an original part of the creation. And so, Paul, one thing that I know about the fossil record and the fossils in it, they're all dead. <laughs> Right. So, <laughs> right. Right. So uh, I, I can go to a museum and not worry about the T-Rex trying to eat me because it's dead. Um, so how does that change the way you view the fossil record? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, if 
animal death, uh, the death of nefesh animals, animals that, you know, have the breath of life and, um, you know, uh, can shed their blood. If, if the death of those animals is also the consequence of Adam's sin and not, and not physical human death alone, and I think there are all kinds of reasons for thinking that that's the case, then that clearly has an impact on how we uh, understand the fossil record because the fossil record of animals being, as you say, comprised of the remains of dead things has to post-date the fall of Adam. So the fossils can't be a record of a long period of pre-human history. Right. Uh, it has to be explained in the biblical model sometime after Adam falls into sin and death comes into the world. And one very obvious place, of course, to uh, explain the fossil record is in the flood of Noah, when uh, there was a worldwide catastrophe that would have um, destroyed the communities of the pre-flood world and presumably buried them and preserved them. And that seems a very obvious place to explain at least much of the fossil record. Right. So this puts us at odds with a lot of other creation models that have been proposed in the past. For example, uh, a model that was pretty popular in the 19th century, you see it a lot, uh, is mm. what what has been called the day age model the idea that mm. the the great periods of time in the fossil record showing this alleged development of, of living things is really uh, reflected in the days of creation that the days of creation are mm. sort of giving us uh, a large big picture overview of the the development of the fossil record and so, and so the days in Genesis 1 are really intended to be understood as long periods of time. And so the creationist comes to that and says, or the young age creationist comes to that and says, yeah, but the, the fossil record is full of dead things. And if Adam's sin caused death, then that's not likely to be correct. So that's, yeah. for me, this is one of the big, big distinctives of being a young age creationist where, you know... Mm. For, for mm -hmm. anything that's got a skeleton, really, um, yeah, that's got to be yeah. fossilized after the fall. Yeah. And of course, we did an episode about the gap theory as well, which is another attempt to explain the mm -hmm. fossil record prior to uh, the creation of Adam by sort of putting all of that in a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, um, where there was a kind of former creation that, that got destroyed and that sort of explains the fossil record. And that was another popular, you know, uh, view mm -hmm. at one time, perhaps not so popular these days, at least in scholarly circles, but right. I think you still find it among, um, you know, pe people sort of sitting in the pew. Yep. Um, and that, as you say, is one of the big distinctive features of young earth creationism that we actually explain the fossil record in terms of uh, events after the, the fall after after adam falls into sin that's right and it's it's quite distinctive so so for those of you listening yeah. episode 12 is the gap theory episode we'll definitely have that linked um, but otherwise i don't think we've done a single episode that is clearly related to this question of the fall and the origin of death no. and i can think of several episodes that we could do 
And we probably yeah. should uh, shortlist here for the fall, maybe, or the summer um, related to this, this question because mm-hmm. it's gigantic. It's one of our biggest distinctives as young age creationists. Um, so it seems yeah. like we should give some attention to it. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and I would also put in here, you know, thinking about the fall, it's not just that there is no death, but you really have to sort of alter your way of thinking in biology about a lot of different things. Because when mm. you study living organisms, you find out that there are a lot of really, uh, organisms have a lot of amazing attributes that seem beautifully designed to kill other things. <laughs> Lions, for example, <laughs> jellyfish yeah. with their stingers. Um, and there are things that are designed to cause a great deal of suffering, like bee stings and scorpions and, and snake bites. Uh, so yeah. all of that sort of stuff sort of wraps into this question of yeah. um, of the fall. And I think we ought to be, yeah, in the future, yeah. I can think of a couple episodes we could do on that. That would be really, really good. Yeah. And it's also it's also the nature of defensive structures. Yeah. You know, you've got the animals that are designed right. to look designed to kill, to predate on other animals, but you've also got the ways that other animals then try to prevent themselves being the victims of predation. So you you have, you know, animals that are designed to run fast to get away from predators, and you've got animals that have camouflage, and some of the camouflage is remarkably um you know impressive where you have insects you know that look like twigs and leaves and you know or they have a kind of a fake pair of eyes on their wings to make them look really big and scary and impressive you know to to ward off a predator and all of that has to be explained somehow in the young age creation model um in terms of a world that originally didn't have death and predation in it right um so there are huge questions there and that that would be a fascinating set of episodes to talk to some uh talk to some people about that yeah yeah i think this i think the question of mimicry all by itself would be just mm-hmm. utterly fascinating the the the, the yeah. insects and and like you say the walking sticks and people you know, mm. here in the Eastern U.S., you've probably seen a walking stick from time to time. But the amazing diversity of those insects and their ability to mimic very precise forms of plant uh, is just breathtaking. And as you as you note, there's really no need, theoretically, to do that prior to the fall if nothing was out to try to kill them. So, so that's a that's a that's an area of the creation model that I think there's been a lot of research and a lot of discussion on, which is great. Um, we just need to put it on the show. Yeah. All right. Well, the next category then is the flood. We've talked a lot about flood related research. Um, episode six and seven, when we talked about the, uh, the geologic column and how that works and how we might explain that within the creation model with reference, especially to the flood. Um, episode 22, uh, in our great discoveries, uh, in creation series, we talked to Art Chadwick about his dinosaur dig, how that relates Mm. to the flood. Episode 24, another episode in our great discoveries in creation series. When we talked to John Whitmore about his work in the Grand Canyon, um, we talked in episode 25, we talked to you 
about your fossils in the flood book. So that was good. Mm. And then we started a series, episode 26, on radiometric dating. And that one was very, very brief. And we didn't really get into much other than trying to explain the basics of how these sorts of dating methods sort of work in a very, very general way. We are definitely going to um, uh, return to that. We already have an episode uh, scheduled uh, to return to that subject. And I know we have a number of other conceptualized episodes, but that's basically where it is. So we've already sort of mentioned that the, the basic concepts here um, with the idea that if, if death is a consequence of the fall, Adam's fall into sin, then the fossil record with all of its dead things post-dates the fall. It must come after the fall. And Paul, you said the most logical place to put most of that is the flood, right? Makes sense to me. Now, is it true then that the flood caused all of the fossils? I think we mentioned this in one of our Q&A episodes, but let's refresh our memory here. Are you saying the flood made the entire fossil record start to finish, top to bottom? Uh, not the entire fossil record. Okay. Uh, uh, certainly a considerable proportion of the, the fossil record. Okay. But uh, there there are there is a portion of the fossil record that may actually predate the flood, that, okay. that may um, date from, even from, you know, going back to creation week, but certainly the period before the flood, between creation and the flood. And then there is a portion of the fossil record that was formed after the flood. After the flood, uh, there was a period of some uh, decades to centuries where the world was recovering, was experiencing um, residual catastrophism. And there was enormous scope for uh, the, the burial and preservation of organisms in the fossil record after the flood. Um, there's a lot of discussion about exactly you know where we draw that boundary between the end of the flood and the post-flood period. And yeah. actually it's, it's quite a complex question because uh, the flood may not have ended in the same place everywhere. You know, yeah. who's to say that the world was, um, you know, above the flood waters at the time, you know, Noah steps off the ark um, and maybe the land was dry where Noah steps off the ark, but who's to say that somewhere else in the world, it's not still underwater, you know, maybe right. for a long time after the flood. Um, so it's it's quite complex to sort of tease out exactly where that boundary is. But I think everybody agrees that however we define the end of the flood, um, there are fossils that were uh, formed afterwards, even even if it's only the Ice Age fossils. Yeah. I mean, I think there are more fossils than that that formed after the flood. But I think just about everybody's agreed that at least the, the Ice Age fossils are post-flood. So, so I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think another issue that is going to help our listeners and viewers understand this in the future is uh, the mechanism of the flood. I think we really ought mm. to think about an episode or two or three or four on um, when we talk <laughs> about the flood. Yeah. We are not thinking in terms of, oh, my goodness, it rained a lot and now there's water in my yard. Mm. Uh, 
Actually, where I live, I'm up on a hill, so it would have to rain a lot to get water in my yard. But um, uh, but that's basically, I think, when people think about flooding, they, they think about on the news, you know, it's really rained a surprising amount in a very short amount of time. And so, oh my goodness, you know, this poor person's basement is full of water. Um, that is not at all, <laughs> not even close, really to what we creationists think about when we're thinking about the flood. And so when you talk about mm. sort of the post-flood residual catastrophism, that's a word that you used, a phrase that you used, mm. the, the term there is is thinking, we're thinking in terms of the flood is this massive catastrophe that literally yeah. reshaped pretty much every aspect of the physical globe, just about. Yeah. Um, and so it has a lot of aftershocks, just like earthquakes have a lot of aftershocks. So in a sense, then, yeah. I think, and this is this is my take on, on the whole flood, post-flood boundary controversy, you know, what fossils belong to the post-flood. For me, part of the problem is that the flood never really ended in a, in a <laughs> very simple way, right? It's not like yeah. it was a year long and Noah got off the, the ark and it was over. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. It was, that, it was that's the kind of that's the kind of children's storybook version of, yeah. of the flood, isn't it? Where yeah. where all the animals come off the ark and the sun is shining and yep. ev- everything's lovely. And, and it's all yeah, dry. That's and, not yeah. it's all dry. <laughs> that's yeah. not how it would be after a global catastrophe. You can't imagine a global catastrophe where that would happen. Yeah. Um yeah. It's it's gonna be much more complex than that. It would be terrifying. And I think I think you're it would, it would, and I, I think you're right um, that uh, a lot of misconce- sort of misconceived criticisms of flood geology are made because people are trying to scale up yeah. what they see in a local sort of river flood to this global event, and of course that's just completely the wrong way to think about it. This, this is a, this is an event that really doesn't have any sort of close modern analog right. that we can we can just sort of scale up um and of course this was th- this was what led to the development of the theory known as catastrophic plate tectonics um the, the idea that the earth's crust is broken up into a series of, sort of rigid plates that mo- move relative to one another and drag continents around you know behind them this actually was the insight that helped us to understand physically what was going on at the time of the flood. Yep. Um, and it would be great to do some episodes looking at all of that because we, you know, we've touched on it, but we we haven't dealt with it in a, a lot of detail. I think. Right. Yeah. We have. We have sort of. It's it's come up from time to time, but I think I do think it's time for us to sort of bring the viewer into and the, and the listeners into thinking about what in the world a global flood really means. Um, yeah. Because the world, and here's, here's the mind blowing thing for me. This, when I realized this, this has sort of really changed the way I think about it. The world that we know today with the amount of water that exists here in the present could not flood. There's, mm. The mountains are too tall. The ocean trenches and basins are too deep. There's literally no way for this world that we live in right now to actually flood completely where all every square inch of land is underwater. You would mm. 
have to change the physical nature of the relationship of the continents to the ocean basins. You'd have to change the height of the mountains. You'd have to change the depth of ocean trenches and so forth in order to basically smooth out the surface of the world so that you could actually cover it all with water. Which, okay, well, that's that's not just, it rained a long time, and so there's water in my yard. That's, that's, a, yeah. that's a complete, truly worthy event of the word catastrophe, right? That is a real yeah. catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. And you realize sometimes, you know, from the kinds of questions people ask, that they're not thinking on a grand enough scale when right. they're thinking about the flood. You know, you get people who say to you, well, you know, where is the flood layer, the, 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 the sediment <laughs> yeah. layer that was left behind by the flood, as if it's like a river flood that kind of yep. leaves, you know, a one foot thickness of sediment right. somewhere, right. you know. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's the flood layer. No, this this is a world shaping event. This is a, you've you've got to kind of step back and really look at the big picture yeah. if you want to understand the evidence for for the global flood. It's starting to look you know microscopically at individual you know layers. You know that's that's it's, interesting, you're, but you're going to miss it. <laughs> you're looking at the wrong scale. You've got yeah, to step yeah. back. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that naturally brings us to the next phase, which is the period of the Tower of Babel and after the flood. Um, we haven't talked much about the Tower of Babel at all. Uh, it's a really important thing to think about when we're thinking about uh, the origin of modern human culture. But mm. uh, the post-flood period, as we've already said, are, also has a lot of other things related to it. Um including, we've already mentioned the Ice Age. So that's episode 11, uh, where we interviewed Steve Golmer from Cedarville University about the Ice Age and his research related to that. Um, so basically the idea that goes into that is that, you know, the, the world at the end of the flood had very warm oceans and very relatively cold continents. And so this created the, a, what we think is a climate that would generate very quickly a lot of precipitation that would follow snow and then that snow because the cool climate interiors would allow for there to be cool summers you would have buildup of snow over time that turns into glaciers and so you get glaciation and so the ice age we think is explained now if you listen to our episode with Dr. Golmer, you know it's a lot more complicated than that. That's true. So, you, And if you don't know that, you should listen to that episode, uh, episode 11. <laughs> I also put in this one um, our most recent discussion of human fossils in episode 21, uh, where I talked a lot about caves and creatures, uh, how we know certain things are after the flood. That's definitely... Uh, worth listening to as well. But there's a lot of other subjects there. Things like uh, radiocarbon dating, right? So this is going to be yeah. something we're going to want to talk about in the in the series on radiometric dating because radiocarbon dating is quite different. Paul, do, do people ask you, you know, if, if the Earth is so young, how come you got carbon dating on those dinosaur fossils and things like that? <laughs> uh, there's a yeah. lot of confusion, yeah, but... I think. <laughs> There's a lot of confusion. Yeah, pe people confuse radiocarbon dating with other types of radiometric dating, and they they are quite different and applied in different contexts. So, right. 
radiocarbon dating, you know, is is not the technique that geologists are going to use to to try to date lava flows and right, things right, of that kind. Right. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of confusion about that. But I think, and, it, and I guess, sorry, go go ahead. No, nah, I was just going to say, I think it fits in pretty well with the post flood. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you want to you want to yes fill us in on certainly that? radio certainly radiocarbon does. Um, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know our whole view as young age creationists of radiocarbon um is going to be very radically different from the conventional view because we believe that during the flood um a huge quantity of carbon was in effect sequestered in the fossil record it was sort of buried the 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 earth's um biota you know all of the forests of the world were 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 sort of ripped up and and a vast proportion of them were, were buried in the fossil record and and so that that's going to you know have an impact on how you understand the world's carbon budget and uh, you know the proportions of normal radio uh, normal carbon to to radiocarbon and and how you therefore interpret radiocarbon dates so yeah. um that's so, all so that's an interesting error yeah it's tied in tightly with the with the flood model um <clears throat> and then mm-hmm. that ties in then with you know, you know where you get radiocarbon in the first place. Where do you get this carbon fourteen yeah. stuff that's radioactive? Um, yeah. And so that all ties together. That's going to be a really great story. If you're thinking, I wish you'd yeah. explain more. Stay tuned. We're definitely yeah. going to have an episode on that because it's a really cool, it's a really cool subject. What, one of the other subjects that I think sort of fits into this post flood um, period. Um, and again, there's been some model building work done here by creationists, and that's about biogeography of animals. Yes. So, you know, how did animals get to the places where we see them today? Yes. Um, I'm thinking particularly of, you know, land animals that would have been descended from the survivors on the ark. Yep. How did they get to far-flung continents? You know, yep. if if at the end of the flood, the continents were basically roughly in the places where we see them today... Um, uh, they had to cross ocean barriers and how did they do that and uh you know so so there's 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 a lot of work that's that's been done there to think about that question that's right and you find also island biogeography fits into that as well yeah idea of you know how do you get animals out to these isolated islands in the middle of the ocean Mm -hmm. um so far away from land and actually there's I think there's some pretty good answers to those kinds of questions. Yeah. Make a lot of sense. Uh, and island biogeography is, is one of my, one of my favorite subjects. If I'm not doing mm. stuff with human fossils, I, I like to think about island mm. biogeography, maybe because I also like to go to yeah. islands and visit them. <laughs> <laughs> and island biogeography, island biogeography, of course, on the, on the biggest scale, um, you know, we have to think about the marsupials in, in uh, oh, yeah. Australia. Yeah, and uh, that's another you know big question in the in the creation model about uh, why we don't find indigenous placentals there in that's Australia right. and how how did that happen? So that's right. Yeah, so there's there's lots of interesting things to talk about in the creation model there about distribution of animals. Yep. So that the re the resettling of the earth, the settling of the earth in terms of less and less uh, catastrophism after the flood. And then the resettling and the dispersal of creatures to the places we find them today. How did that happen? And of course, then the origin and development of human culture, which we haven't talked about much either. Yeah. But, so 
So lots of good episode ideas here. Uh, then the final category here I have, uh, well, I have actually two categories. Uh, one would be the importance of creation. Yeah. Um, so we covered that in a couple of episodes. Episode two, why creation is important. So that would explain that one. Uh, episode uh, 13, which we talked about uh, with uh, Tom Hennigan at Truett uh, McConnell University. Uh, we talked about environmental mm -hmm. stewardship. What is our, and that's mm -hmm. one of those questions of what is our responsibility towards God's creation? Uh, what yeah. should we be doing? So that's relevant. Yeah. Um, episode 18. Uh, which was about Reformation Day, and we talked to Nathan Brummel uh, about uh, the Reformers and their views on creation. And then episode 23, we talked about creation in the New Testament. And we just spent that episode just going over some of the passages in the New Testament that refer very closely to things that happen in the Old Testament in ways that really sound like the New Testament thinks mm. the New Testament authors really think these things happen. It's not just, they're not mm. just making reference to Gandalf or Aslan or something like that, but <laughs> they actually think these things really happen. So, and all of those things relate to the importance of creation. This isn't some side issue. This isn't a bunch of weirdos who are just obsessed with science and trying to fit the Bible together in some weird way. This is really very fundamental. And I can think of a number of other episodes that we could do in this area talking about doctrines of, of mm. the church that relate to creation. Um, mm. So we should definitely think about scheduling some of those episodes in the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, it's helpful when we think about the importance of creation to think about the overall storyline of the Bible, the, the whole sort of redemptive narrative and you know if you think about um the central truths of christianity you know why jesus came to die on the cross and why he was resurrected from the dead um if you kind of work back from the solution which is christ's sacrifice back to what the problem was then that has implications for what happened at the beginning, right? So, you know, if right. you start to rewrite what happened at the beginning, you're 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 actually going to end up with quite a different sort of overall narrative. Um, right. You know, certainly if you kind of follow follow those things through logically, and then of course we have uh, the doctrine of future things. You know, we're looking forward to this new heavens and a new earth. Why is a new heavens and a new earth even necessary? Yeah. Why is it not? Why is it not just me why do i you know i need personal salvation but why is that not enough why do we have to have a new creation well it's because something's gone wrong with the old creation uh you know it's not just about me and my personal sin there's some cosmic implications to what happened at the time of adam's fall so i think you know when you begin to kind of think about creation that way it's it's very hard to sort of shunt it off to one side and say well that's really just a discussion about, you know, a few minor chapters in the Bible that really, you know, don't affect other Christian teaching, other core Christian teaching, because I think it really does. Right. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, one more category that contained a couple of miscellaneous episodes here, alternative views, of discredited ideas. Um, so in that category, I put uh, episode 10 with the canopy theory, which was an earlier creation model that has over the years, people we've realized it's 
just doesn't hold water. Literally, doesn't hold water. Um, Pun intended. Yeah, yeah. And then episode 12 on the gap theory, um, which is another old creation model that just doesn't really work. Paul, I think we could probably do one in the future on the day-age model. I think that's worth um, discussing as well, at least where it came from historically and and how it has been conceived of in the 19th century. Um, Yeah, and I I wonder, and another one that would be an obvious one that comes to mind is about the Paluxy... Um, river footprints the, oh the tracks my. Because, yes that would definitely be because that that still kind of you know comes up um yeah. and and you get asked about it sometimes and you know it was one of those popular creationist ideas that um i think right. all of the big all of the sort of major creation organizations you know have sort of moved away from, from the idea that there are contemporaneous dinosaur and human tracks in the bed of the Paluxy River in Texas. But right. the whole story of what happened there at Paluxy actually is a really interesting one. It's pretty fascinating, and, yeah. <laughs> and I think that would make a, a really interesting episode sometime. Yeah, we should probably do that. Because it's not just one of the things that, that you know we know about in education. It's not just a matter of giving people the truth and explaining it clearly to them. That's remarkably important. But it's also to show them, you know, this other idea that you have, probably not going to work. You probably want to mm. think more carefully about the better idea that I have. So it's it's <laughs> both things are important and necessary for yeah. people to really have the truth stick in their heads and understand why, why these ideas are important and, and why mm. these other ideas are probably not going to work. Mm-hmm. So that's my categories. Those are the episodes. The yeah. only two episodes we haven't really talked about. So I mentioned at the beginning there were four episodes that didn't really fit into the model. Two episodes were these discredited ideas, the gap theory and the canopy theory. The other two episodes would be the Origins uh, conference interviews. Now, they do fit in. The individual interviews fit into the model. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll probably give you some, uh, some detail about that in the show notes about how the individual interviews fit. Um, but that's also a, a nice exhibit of um, of what creationist scholarship really looks like, um, and what mm. what's going on in the world of creation research. Mm. Uh, so, and it might so, be good sometime to do an episode about sort of future research directions. Definitely, you know, what are the big unanswered questions? Uh, you know, what where are the areas where we need more scholarship? Um, That's right. You know, where, what what are going to be the big hot button topics that we need to be addressing in the, you know, the, the, the next generation of creation researchers needs to be uh, talking about. Exactly. Uh, right. That would be an interesting episode, too. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, some of them have some really good ideas that haven't been really fleshed out, which need to be fleshed out. Uh, and I'm hoping, you know, there's some hot young talent listening to our uh to our podcast going i would like to get involved maybe you're maybe you're still in high school maybe you're just starting college yeah. and you're thinking this is really cool stuff they talk about i want to learn more <laughs> fantastic you should uh connect up with us um speaking of which uh you can find out more about the podcast at coreside.org podcast you can also send us an email podcast at coresci.org that's c-o-r-e-s-c-i dot o-r-g um don't forget uh 
to uh, check out also our sponsor for this uh, episode, Cascadia Creation Conference at creationconf.com. Creation, C-O-N-F dot com. Um, that's another great place to connect with uh, creation scholars and researchers and to learn more about what's going on in creationism. Um, Paul, tell me about Biblical Creation Trust. Where can I make a donation there if I want to support your ministry and the work of the podcast mm. that way? Yes, if you check out biblicalcreationtrust.org, uh, that's our main website, and there's a donate button on the homepage, and that will take you to all of the options to give to us. And uh, we also are on social media, particularly on Facebook. We're quite active there. So, uh, yeah, check out biblicalcreationtrust.org. And you can check out coresci.org to find out more about uh, the Core Academy of Science, which also co-sponsors our podcast here. Uh, if you go to coresci.org slash connect, you'll find links to all of our relevant social media outlets where you can also connect with us directly there um, through Facebook or Twitter or I think we're on Instagram. We're on a bunch of different platforms. Check us out. Uh, and uh, do remember to leave a like uh, on this uh, video if you're watching it on YouTube. Um, if not, um, then think about leaving us a uh, review on whatever podcast platform you're, you're accessing this with. That actually helps us out quite a bit, as I mentioned. And uh, next, next episode, Paul, I believe we're hmm. talking to Dr. Gene Leitner. Is that right? That's right. We thought that it was about time that we did an episode entirely devoted to the topic of created kinds and baromenology, uh, a topic that we've sort of touched on uh, throughout our um, series of episodes, but we've not done a whole episode about it. And Gene Leitner is a creation biology researcher who has done a lot of work and a lot of thinking in this area. And we thought it'd be great to have a, a chat to her about the work that she's doing. Yeah. So, Come back here in two weeks and we will talk a little more about creative kinds that will relate to a number of different areas in the creation model. Uh, and I think that is going to be a fascinating discussion. So thanks you everyone for listening and uh, thanks for coming along with us on this really interesting discussion of the creation model. And we'll see you next episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coresci.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you. <laughs>